Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it, it grieves us to be separated once again tonight. We long to be together physically, but we thank you that your word can still be proclaimed and listened to by means of our live stream. Uh, that is a great blessing in times such as these. Uh, help me to proclaim this word faithfully. Help me to apply it thoughtfully. Uh, help everyone at home to listen attentively, knowing that uh, this is your good word, which is food for our souls. Uh, may we come away from this passage with a bigger view of who you are and the hope that you give us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Don't get your hopes up. That has been one of the big messages throughout this pandemic, I think. Uh, will our holiday happen? Don't get your hopes up. Uh, will I be able to have my 21st birthday party? Don't get your hopes up. Will I be able to attend the finals? Don't get your hopes up. Will this lockdown end in five days? Don't get your hopes up. Uh, we say this to one another because uh, we've seen the way this pandemic has dashed the hopes of so many of our plans. Uh, last year I married three different couples in lockdown and as much as these couples rejoiced over the fact they could, they could still be married, all of them had to accept the bitter fact that some of their long-held hopes would not come to pass. No physical bodies sitting in the pews, no parents walking them down the aisle, no wonderful after-party with friends and family. That's kind of all a bit sad, isn't it? So many good things we hope to happen tainted by that don't-get-your-hopes-up reality. Now, wouldn't it be good if instead of the message, don't get your hopes up, we heard the words, get your hopes up. Because no matter what happens, you're not going to be disappointed. Well, that is the message I think God is giving us tonight in the story of the Shumanite woman. God is showing us that his good promises, the hope he gives us, will not fail, even in the face of death. Uh, so what I'm going to do is look at this story in three parts. Uh, hope mercifully realized, hope seemingly ruined, and then hope powerfully renewed. Uh, and once we've thought about the passage, we'll then think about how it applies to us in light of God's greater hope of life that we receive now in Jesus. So first, hope mercifully realized. Uh, what do you give someone who appears to have everything? You know, maybe you've faced that dilemma when buying a Christmas or a birthday present for a family member. You know, you just think they have everything. I don't know what to get them. Uh, in my opinion, that's where gift cards come in to the equation. That They are the gift that says, uh, I have no idea what you need. You seem to have everything. You figure it out. See, what do you get someone who just seems to have everything? Uh, believe it or not, that is Elisha's dilemma at the start of this passage tonight. Twice he asks about this well-to-do Shumanite woman, what can be done for you, verse 13. See it again there in verse 14. See, Elisha was desperate to give something to this Israelite woman who had given so much to him. She had, and she had been very kind to him, hadn't she? Verse 8 tells, uh, tells us that this well-to-do woman had generously given of her own resources to help Elisha. Every time he came by, she would invite him in for a meal. 
And she wasn't just interested in feeding him either, was she? Verse 9 tells us that she even remodeled her house so that he could have a place to stay. Elisha gets a fully decked out guest room, verse 10, with all the trimmings, bed, table, chair, lamp. He could stay there as much as he liked, free of charge. He could relax, do some study, sermon prep, and then come down for dinner. I reckon that sounds pretty great. And so does Elisha. That's why he's so keen to return the favor to this woman. And so to come back to that question I just raised, what do you give someone who appears to have everything like this well-to-do Shunammite woman? Uh, It's clear that Elisha doesn't want to go the gift card option. And so after some serious thinking, he puts out his first suggestion, verse 13. Uh, Can we speak on behalf of the king or the commander of the army? You know, we've we've got a few handy connections. Perhaps we can put in a good word for you. But she's not really interested in that, is she? It's kind of like, thanks, but no thanks. I have a home among my own people, she says. That is, I, I have everything I need right here in my home and community. And so suggestion number two comes, but not from Elisha, but his servant Gehazi, who says to Elijah in verse 14, Elisha, She has no son, and her husband is old. You know, Elisha, if you could perhaps do something about that, I reckon she'd be pretty happy. And I can imagine Elisha sort of thinking this one through, you know, no son, husband getting old. What's her future going to look like? Who's going to look after her in the years after her hubby dies? And so I think Elisha is leaning towards Gehazi's suggestion. A son is what it is. And so he calls the woman and present, calls in the woman and presents his or God's gift to her, verse 16. He says, about this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. You see, where the first suggestion falls flat, this offer hits the mark powerfully. A son, that is what you give this woman who appears to have everything. You see, it turns out that this was the one thing that she didn't have but desperately longed for deep down. And actually that's why she is so careful not to get her hopes up when she hears Elisha mention uh, mention this promise. Look at what she says in verse 16. No, my Lord, please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Elisha, this issue is raw for me. It's, it goes deep. Don't toy with my emotions. Don't get my hopes up. But there isn't any misleading, is there? Because in the very next verse, we read that the woman became pregnant. And, next, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. This woman's deepest hope had been mercifully realized in the birth of her son. And I just want to kind of pause briefly at this point in the story to reflect on the kindness of God in that picture. You see, if you know a little bit about the storyline of the Bible, you'll know that this isn't the first or last time that God fulfills the longing of a childless woman. 
Uh, We see it first in the elderly Sarah, wife of Abraham, then Rebecca, then Rachel, then Samson's mother, then Samuel's mother, Hannah, then this widow, and then you see it happen again in the New Testament with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. But there is something unique about this woman, uh, the woman of this passage, compared to all the other women on that list. You see, in all those other cases, the child born to the women serves a huge purpose in God's uh, redemptive plan. So like Isaac, for example, they might be essential for the continuation of God's covenant people. Or like the babies Samson or Samuel, they might be used by God to lead his people through a particular crisis. But it's different here. The boy born to this woman is not essential for the continuity of Israel, and nor does he become an outstanding leader, at least we don't think so. As one commentator pointed out, he probably just farmed the property and then died. So what's the point here? Well, the point is to show us God's character. Sometimes he does things simply because he's kind and compassionate. And it's good for us to remember this because sometimes I think God gets a bad rap, particularly in the Old Testament. Sometimes he's painted, I think, as a bit of an ogre who is only interested in condemnation and punishment. Uh, I was speaking with someone who was in a Christian recently, and she made the comment that in her understanding of the Old Testament, God just comes across as a little judgy, i.e. not really the God you'd like to meet. But isn't the God of this woman a God you'd like to meet? Yes, God shows justice on sin and evil in the Bible, which is actually good, but he also shows his kindness and mercy repeatedly to hurting and needy people. We saw it last week with the widow, the no-name widow. We We see it tonight. And the Apostle James tells us that God's kind nature hasn't changed, even for us today. Every good and perfect gift is from above, says James, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The kind God who gives a son to this woman is the same kind God who gives of his son to save sinners. So hope mercifully realized for this woman But second, hope seemingly ruined. Uh, There is nothing more fearful for parents than the thought of losing their child. I mentioned earlier this year in a sermon how one of our daughters went missing at the beach last summer, and that is by far the most terrified I have ever been in my life. So I just can't kind of imagine the feeling of that fear of losing my child becoming a reality which is what happens to this woman. And you see, all her newfound hopes that she had with this boy of kind of watching him grow up, perhaps seeing him marry, have kids of his own, all of them are just dashed in this moment, at least from her point of view. Her deepest hope had been realised. Her deepest hope now seemed ruined. Look with me at verses 18 to 19 of the passage. The child grew... And one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. He said to his father, Ah, my head, my head. 
Now, Dad's not entirely sure what to do, so like every wise dad, uh, he looks for mum's help. Uh, He tells the servant to carry the boy to his mum. His mum then tries to comfort the boy on her lap in this really sad scene, but things just deteriorate, and in verse 20, we read those words, every parent dreads to hear, and then he died. How would you respond if you were that mother? I think if that was me, I'd just kind of collapse in an uncontrollable, sobbing mess on the floor. And I'm pretty confident that's probably what she wants to do in this moment. But notice how she composes herself for the time being. There will be a time for grief, I think, in her mind. But right now, the only thing she, the only thing she wants to do is to speak with Elisha. See, he had kind of got her hopes up. She had then watched them crash down, and she wants him to know about it. From verse 21 to 27, she is single-minded in her pursuit of Elisha. And so when her confused husband, husband kind of asks what's going on in verse 23, she almost kind of brushes him off. No, things are all right. I just need to go. Saddle the donkey. And when she gets to where Elisha is, notice she again brushes Gehazi off. When Elisha sends him to come out to her with the question, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Notice what she says. Everything's all right. Perfectly fine, thanks. I just need to see Elisha. And so it's only in verse 27 when she has locked onto her target that all the grief finally comes out. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. In her bitter distress, this woman clings to Elijah's feet and basically just cries out, Why? Uh, when you hear the quote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Do you agree or do you disagree? What do you think the woman of our passage would have said or done if Elijah had, Elisha had said to her in this moment, well, I guess it's better to have loved your son and lost him than to have never loved him at all. I suspect she would have slapped him if he had said something like that. See, listen to her words in verse 28. Did I, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? I told you not to get my hopes up. I told you not to toy with my emotions. And now I'm devastated. My hope is ruined. You need to hear this, Elisha. God needs to hear this. And I suspect most of us kind of get where this woman is coming from, from her point of view in this moment of time. If God simply raises our hopes only to then dash them to pieces, what kind of God is that? And why would I want to follow him if he just sets me up to crush me down again. Well, thankfully, our our passage and the woman's hope 
doesn't end here. Her bitter distress is not the final note of this passage. Her hope seems ruined now, but it is powerfully renewed as God brings life in the face of death. So that's our third point, hope powerfully renewed. Uh, When Elisha sees the bitter distress of his friend, he immediately seeks to help her. Uh, But did you notice that his first attempt kind of falls flat? Uh, He had told his servant Gehazi in verse 29 to quickly run ahead with Elisha's staff in hand, lay it on the boy's face. But if you jump ahead to verse 31, we see that approach actually doesn't bear any fruit. There was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to Elisha and told him the boy is not awakened. Uh, It's a little bit unusual in the narratives of Elijah and Elisha that the first approach of the prophet doesn't bear fruit. That's a bit unusual. So what's going on with this scene? Well, I think it's giving us the reminder that we need in 1 and 2 Kings that it's actually the power of God, not the power of the prophet, that is needed to bring life. And in this case, life from the dead. The dead. And that's why I think the narrator highlights the fact that Elisha is brought to his knees in dependent prayer to God. You see, the woman convinces Elisha to come back with her and he walks into the room that she had built for him. He sees her son lying dead on the bed. And we read in verse 33 that he went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. But he doesn't just use words in that petition to God, does he? Like Elijah had done back in 1 Kings 17, Elisha kind of uses acted out symbols. He kind of gets up and, I guess, awkwardly stretches himself out over the boy, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, we read, hands to hands. And verse 35 tells us he does it again for a second time. And I think it's easy to be confused about what's actually going on here. But I think it's best to understand then these symbols as a way of Elisha saying to God, God, as life runs through my body, the entirety of my body, may it run through the entirety of his body. Raise him, Lord. And God responds, doesn't he? Life returns to the boy. He sneezes seven times and then opens his eyes. COVID has made us all run from sneezes today, but I'm sure they weren't running but rejoicing when this boy started sneezing. Verse 36, Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shumanite. And he did. And when she came, he said, Take your son. She came and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. I see, this woman wasn't just given back her son that day. She was given a renewed, a supercharged faith in God's life-saving power that would actually stay with her forever. You see, think about how this moment would have changed things for, for her and her son for the rest of their life together. You know, let, let's throw out some scenarios. Let's say a drought came to Shunem in the years that followed this moment. Well, I can imagine her saying to her son, it's okay, there's still hope. If God can bring you back from the dead, well, he can bring us through this. Or let's say in years to come, this faithful family was persecuted by Israel's Baal-worshipping elite. 
Well, I can imagine her saying, it's okay, son. Don't be afraid. There's still hope. If God can bring you back from the dead, we can trust him in this persecution. In this passage of two kings, we see hope realized, hope seemingly ruined, hope powerfully renewed by the faithful God who brings life in the face of death. See, this woman's experience is telling you that if you want the kind of hope that meets your deepest need that cannot be destroyed, you will find it in the God of this passage. He is the God who is in the business of providing hope that lasts, even in the face of death. He gave wonderful hope to this woman. He gives a greater hope still to you in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this passage in many ways serves as a foretaste or a preview of the better hope, the greater hope of life that Jesus offers to those who trust him. Uh, Throughout his life, Jesus showed us that he had the power to raise the dead. In fact, in a town called Nain, which was very close to Shunem, Jesus gave back another only son to a grieving mother. He did this as he did other resurrection miracles to show us that he now is the one we must turn to for a greater hope of life in the face of death. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he freed us from the penalty of death and he gave to us, to those who trust in him, the gift of eternal life. As, John, as Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, in our passage tonight, the boy's resurrection is amazing. It's wonderful to read of. But the hope of resurrection life Jesus gives to you is actually so much better than what you read here. You see, this boy was raised from the dead spectacularly, but it wasn't lasting. He simply returned to the broken and sinful world from which he came. He grew old, and then he would have died again. Jesus promises a resurrection from the dead that, by contrast, will be eternal. And it won't just be more of this life as we know it. It will be life with God in which there will be no more sin, suffering, or pain, a world without sin. But how do we know that Jesus' promise of of heaven and resurrection life is actually for real? You know, the thought of an eternal, bodily, joyful life after death, that's something I think most human hearts actually long for. But how do we know that promise is solid? In fact, there might be some of you listening tonight and thinking a little bit along the lines of the woman when she first got her good promise from God. Maybe you're thinking, don't mislead me. Don't get my hopes up, Jesus. Well, why should we get our hopes up? Well, it's because Jesus has shown us in his own resurrection that he can deliver on his promise of your resurrection. Uh, It kind of reminds me of this interesting fact I learnt a while ago about the Rialto Tower in Melbourne CBD. 
Um, I went there as a kid and was just blown away by the view. I still remember it up on the observation deck. And if you've been up there, you'll know it has these huge kind of floor-to-ceiling windows that gives you just an amazing view of the city. Now, apparently when the Rialto was first built in 1986, there were actually a number of voices in the community raising concern over the integrity and safety of those floor-to-ceiling windows. See, people were a bit worried about uh, the possibility that someone or something might trip or crash and go straight through the window and plummet to their death. And so to answer these concerns, the owner of the company that built Rialto, Bruno Grollo, a, a big burly guy, did something shocking. In front of a number of people up on that deck, he took a running leap into those big floor-to-ceiling windows. And wouldn't you know it, he bounced straight off. The big boss himself proved that his windows were not only visually spectacular, but built to last. In a similar way, God's big boss, the promised King Jesus, shows us that his promise of life not only sounds spectacular, but actually holds up. Jesus himself runs directly into death, only to bounce back to life again. Jesus lays down his own life for sinners, but had full confidence that he would take it back up again by the power of God. Jesus was telling the truth when he said he would rise again, and Jesus is telling the truth when he says to you that he will rise, raise you up at the last day if you trust in him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think the first thing we do is, uh, the, the first thing this calls us to do, this passage, is to get our hopes up and to keep them up when it comes to God's good promise of resurrection life in Jesus. You see, the story of this woman and her son shows us that God is not in the business of dishing out faulty hope. It always comes through gloriously in the end. In Jesus, God is giving us the glorious and sure hope that he will raise us up at the last day. Though physical death comes to all of us, it will not be the end for those who trust in Jesus. During COVID, we have gotten used to hearing the words, don't get your hopes up. Isn't it good to hear God telling us through a passage like this, get your hopes up and keep them there. Don't settle for hope that disappoints. See, so much of the time we go through our life, I think, settling for hopes that disappoint. A COVID, I think, has really exposed some of uh, our hopes that just disappoint. You know, we put our hope in the perfectly planned weekend away and a lockdown happens. We have great hopes for the perfect wedding day only to see wedding uh, guest numbers completely restricted. We put our hope in a new job only to see our role change or disappear under the changing economic circumstances. We put our hope in heading off to Melbourne for uni And experiencing all that fun time of life has to offer. 
only to find ourselves sitting for most of the week in our rooms on a computer. A COVID has exposed many of our usual hopes for what they are, poor substitutes for lasting hope. Uh, if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you, put your hope in something so much better that actually lasts. Put your hope in God's promise of eternal resurrection life in Jesus. Uh, as the Apostle Peter says in chapter 1, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, be affected by a lockdown, my insertion. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Uh, if you want to investigate the claims of Jesus in further detail, I encourage you to come and speak with me, message me, or come and join us in Christianity Explored, which Andrew mentioned earlier. But like the woman in this passage, if you put your hope in God's good promise, you won't ultimately be disappointed. Get your hopes up. So that's the first thing I'd say. But the final thing I'd say uh, is to keep holding on to hope in Jesus when the bitter times come. See, there are going to be moments in life that will probably rattle your faith, cause confusion, and give you great distress. And perhaps like the woman of this passage, you may already have walked that path. Maybe you've already found yourself going through extreme hardship as you wait for the full realisation of God's new creation promise. See, sometimes we feel that bitter distress when we, perhaps like the woman, lose someone close to us or when we suffer a great or chronic illness or when we experience job loss or when we go through a painful relationship breakdown. In moments like these, we need to be like the woman of this passage and actually take that cry, that raw emotion, that bitter distress to God. See, that's what she's doing when she goes to Elisha, God's prophet. Despite what our doubts might tell us, God actually does care in those moments. He does listen, and he invites us to be honest with him in prayer. Uh, one commentator I read I think was a bit overcritical of this woman's actions when she went to Elisha in her distress, suggesting that she perhaps could have been a little bit more like Job in this moment, declaring that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But I'm not sure the text suggests we need to be so critical of her actions. Elisha certainly isn't, doesn't scold her for her approach. It's, in fact, it's the opposite. She is given space to express her bitter distress and then find renewed hope in her faithful God who she is crying out to. In fact, Elisha literally says to Gehazi, leave her alone when he tries to push her away. In your distress, keep speaking to God and keep clinging to the hope that he gives you in Jesus. Our Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of our hope in Jesus as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Maybe you're feeling a little adrift by some painful circumstance. Let me encourage you, to anchor your soul 
to the hope of the new creation, resurrection life, Jesus promises you. Now you might, might want some help with that. You might want someone to pray with you, lift your help, lift your eyes heavenward. I and others are happy to do that. Feel free to reach out. Uh, I was reminded in closing of God's hope of resurrection life a few weeks ago when I needed to go and look after my dad, who has quite significant dementia. A dementia, as many of you will know, is a horrible and terminal condition. It strips a person of their memory, often their dignity, and eventually their life. And in the eyes of the world, I think that the world sees a person with dementia in a kind of hopeless situation. But something my dad said to me really stood out when I was with him uh, that time. We're both sitting at the kitchen table. Uh, Dad was getting kind of a bit confused about a few things. But then he simply said, I know I can't do much. I know I can't remember much. But if I don't pull through all this, I know I'm going to heaven. Isn't that kind of hope something to stake your life on? The hope that says this condition, as bad as it is, will not get the final say. Because Jesus has died for my sins, he will also raise me to life one day. I will have a new body, a restored mind, and a new experience of life with my Savior that far outstrips any comfortable retirement lifestyle that so many others might get to enjoy in their senior years. See, because Dad's trust in Jesus, because Dad trusts in Jesus, he can still get his hopes up, even in the bitter distress of dementia. And when the day comes that he can't even remember his God, well, that's okay too, because we'll get our hopes up for him. Though he might forget God, we know that God will never forget him or his promises of life to him. May God give us all such a sure hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good hope we have in Jesus. Thank you, for the, thank you for his promise of resurrection life to all who believe in him. Help us to rightly get our hopes up when it comes to that good promise. And we pray, Father, that as we walk through painful trials that distress or confuse us, that you would give us grace to endure them. Help us to keep holding fast to the good hope of resurrection life found in Jesus. May it be as the author of Hebrews says, an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.